So here we are drinking our craft beer. Mm-hmm. Romito, what kind of beer is that? This is the Bell's uh, Christmas Ale. Yeah, and I'm yeah. here sitting, uh, sipping on my Lone Star Light. So obviously you're a little more sophisticated on this beer than I am. Uh, it's not that I'm sophisticated. It's just this is kind of what I do now. Yeah. So what, what I'm currently doing. What brought you to the craft beer or wine industry? The fucking pandemic because I'm a chef and I work at HEB and yeah. I spent like 10, 11 months as a cake decorator and the production piece just kind of took a toll. But I always had an interest with beer. I mean, obviously, when you're a chef, you're like wine and beer. Yeah, but I've known you for about 15 years now, and you never had seemed like a beer person before, right? Or were you always a beer person? Uh, Not the way that I am now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was more the wine piece that kind of really... Because that's all I did as a chef for HEB. Yeah, yeah. So I had to do like... You know, the tastings and the recipe development and, you know, pair the wine. And it's just sort of like... Do they teach you guys that kind of stuff in culinary school about, like, pairings and what goes with what? Like, beer versus liquors and wines. Like, obviously, like, meat goes with red wine, right? But do they teach you, like, the, like, articulate type stuff? Uh, A little bit. I think when you're going... And you start to look, go more into where you're looking at becoming a sommelier or you're getting mer- very specialized. They do have like courses and stuff. But for the most part, well, my at ch- in Chicago when, where I went to culinary school, yeah. they didn't really have all that. Yeah. Um, you just sort of like, depending if your teachers were like super cool. Yeah. yeah. We'll, you, we'll like, talk about Chicago in a minute because oh, yeah. I had a, a very interesting experience when I visited you in Chicago. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But so you grew up here in San Antonio, right? Yeah, born and raised. What what high school? I went to Health Careers High School. What year? I graduated in 93. Represent? Yeah. Yeah? Phoenixes. That was me. Dang. And so out of high school, you were like, hey, I'm, I'm going to kill this whole world. I'm doing it. I'm going to live my dream. What was that dream back then? Actually, no, not really. I, I went to Health Careers High School because... My grandmother was a nurse, and most of her sisters were nurses. My uncle was an occupational therapist, and yeah. then my aunt was a dental hygienist. And so a lot of, like, the medical, and even, like, aunts that were just sort of, like, the stay-at-home nurses, mm-hmm. like, that those occupations. Yeah. And so for me, I was just like, oh, yeah, let me just do medical school. And growing up, you're kind of told, like, you're going to become a lawyer. You're going to become a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's just sort of where I, what I fell into. Right. So like before you and your family, um, Hispanic, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Am I safe to assume that? Yeah. Hispanic so causing panic. So were you the first? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Still yeah. to this day. Yeah. Were Were you the first to graduate from uh, college? Right. Or were you? Yeah, I was. I yeah. Was. So I'm assuming, and I was the same way. So my parents didn't go to college. You didn't have really any knowledge about how college worked or like grants or scholarships or anything like that? Fuck no. Yeah. So you just graduated high school and you're like, I'm going to be a doctor. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, okay, yeah, let's just pull out all these loans. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It was the same way for me too. So you graduated 
from health careers and you thought you were going to do medical. Yeah. And then you went to college where? I went to Balalta first mm -hmm. and I was becoming, I wanted to become a physician's assistant. And I think I came close to like, I think I just needed like a semester. But at that time, well, growing up, life was just sort of precarious. Um, growing up, like in the West Side, my younger brother was gang related. Um, my mom was a single mom. How, how far West Side? Because I'm still living on the West Side. So like generic mall in commerce. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's a little deeper West Side. Yeah. Than so I think it's like Las Colonias. Okay. It's called now, which I had no idea that's what it was called or referred to. Yeah. But even my dad rocks a shirt that says Las Colonias that my brother made him. Dang. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's where I grew up. And you you grew up the typical uh, machismo Mexican-American playing football, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All of my tios and yeah, yeah. 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 Like, and I remember with that, we would either, like, wherever we would go for, like, Fridays, Saturdays with, like, like the parents. And if my little brother got, like, hurt or something, I was going to be paying for it later that night with my dad. Cause you didn't, didn't like, didn't yeah. like, yeah, yeah, dang. So then ba back to college. So you went to Palo Alto and then where after? Oh yeah. So I went to Palo Alto and then at that time we were living kind of out in the country and we were, uh, it was Elmendorf. I would, I always refer to that house as the house in Elmendorf. Yeah. And my brother, it was really just my brother and I that were kind of living there. And my mom had moved in with one of her boyfriends and then my brother and I just were not getting along. And so I told my mom, I was like, I'm out. Like, I, I can't do this anymore. And then right around that time, the friends that I was making, who are friends that I still have right now, they were sort of like musicians and like artists, you know, that sort of kind of an element. And that sort of caught my eye. So then... And you were around how old then? 20, 19, Yeah. 20. And so... I ended up um, graduating from SAC with an associate's in radio, television, video, and broadcast. Dang. That was fun. I remember doing my own radio show because I was the PSA director for KSYM at the time. Yeah. So automatically, once you hold like a position, you get a radio show. Oh, and cool. And so I was um, DJ Mars on Monday nights from 9 to 11. And it was a lot of fun. But I was really, really scared, though. Like, I, I, wasn't really, I didn't know what it was that I was doing. But... If I could go back and do it again, oh, trust, I would do it again. You would do it all yeah, over again? I would do it all over again. So were you just like a uh, regular like like DJ jockey, like just playing the tunes? Or yeah. you were like, was it like a talk radio type thing? No, it was just DJ tunes. I handled the Astroworks label and uh, Warp Records. So those were two where we would kind of get in uh, albums that were getting released to screen them and then oh. we would have to rotate them during our like two hour segments okay um, and then i was a psa director so i worked with a lot of um nonprofits and just write up public service announcements if there was like fundraisers or anything that the community needed to be brought to their kind of attention from the organization like that kind of thing did you find yourself good at fundraising because i could tell you from someone who works in that type of world I really suck at fundraising. No, more on the public relations side. So okay. that was sort of like finding locations, networking with the people that needed to get kind of contacted. Yeah. If any kind of media needed to be drawn to it, that was just sort of my my specialty. 
which is funny because then from my associates, I got my undergrad in public relations from UTSA. Yeah, yeah. And so I met you. Go Roadrunners. Yeah, yeah. Like Shout out Roadrunners. Congratulations. <laughs> which is there. Loved it. And then, uh, yeah. So I met you so shortly after that. And so you went into research, right? Yeah. So I was actually, I was a barista for the longest time with Starbucks. Um, I think for probably about 11 years. And was it the it, best job you had? Actually, it kind of was. I could tell you. Yeah. I yeah. was a barista too. And it was by yeah. far the, my favorite job that I've had. I yeah. mean, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot different now than what it was back then. Like yeah. the culture was kind of different. Um, Starbucks to this day though, I still say is one of the best companies I think to work for. Yeah. And even just for the way they just kind of approach things and how they just sort of identify talent and they kind of build and they develop and all that kind of stuff. Um, cause a lot of the things that I learned as a supervisor from them, I still hold to this day. So did the, so I, I worked for Starbucks too. Mm-hmm. So did the kind of intricacy and kind of how meticulous you had to be with making drinks, is that what kind of got you thinking like about being a chef or like food and drink and how all that pairs apart? Like, is that what started it or was it way before that? No, it was way before that. Um, It started more when I was five under like my grandmother's table as she like made uh, tortillas or whatever she was kind of cooking. Yeah. So like the smells from the grandma's kitchen, the sounds that the pots made, her washing dishes, like all of that. Yeah. Culinary school came about because I read this book called Follow Your Own North Star by Martha Beck. And she, I don't know if she's still a contributor, but she was one of Oprah's life coaches back in the day. And she was coming out on Oprah at times and there was an episode that I caught called Law of Attraction and it really resonated. So I literally had gone out to buy the book and then I remember spending an entire day reading that. And it wasn't a really crazy read. It was maybe like 300 something pages. Yeah. But there was a theme throughout the con- the book and it was, you know, when are you most alive? What are your hobbies? What are your passwords? What's your email? And there was just this little like, you went to just cooking and even just sort of monikers that I had kind of created along the way. And so I woke up literally after finishing the book because I was in tears. And I woke up the next morning and for whatever reason, I had always had Chicago in the back of my head. And then I and I, I knew you at this point. Yes. Right. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were working together. Yeah. 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 So it was quite a shock. Yeah. Yeah. So that decision, because like you were doing a total career. Yeah, move. I was. It was really di- the the thing that I was working on at the time that I got to know you is I was kind of that executive admin assistant. Yeah, and you were moving. You were moving your way up. Yeah, and I was yeah. trying to kind of find different things, but I remember doing a lot of outreach, like mm-hmm. the community outreach, and that kind of fell into the stuff that of what I went to school for. But it just, it wasn't really happening. I mean, I was still trying to find like something in in the, a related field in San Antonio, but usually like, or at the time, the marketing degrees sort of just kind of over, like they encompassed public relations and marketing and advertising. So all of that, yeah. um, other than going into government job, but yeah. Yeah. So you made that big decision, right? Mm-hmm. And so you were just like, 
you found the school in Chicago, right? I'm assuming, mm-hmm. or your your plan was just to move to Chicago and then figure it well, out from there. Chicago, there was a school. I mean, Chicago was a city that I thought about, and but I mean, I I had looked into um, Cordon Bleu up in Austin, yeah, um, and even just uh, schools that were here. I think AI was already here, so I graduated from AI yeah. in Chicago, and so I wanted to leave Texas. Like I wanted to. Spread wanted, your wings. Yeah, like I wanted yeah. to know what's out there. Like I, I, I think growing up and being raised here, and if you don't have the support surrounding you growing up early on, really kind of testing the waters or spreading those wings or, you know, anything like that, you're just sort of conditioned to just sort of, you know, do what it is. And I just, I didn't want to do that. Yeah. And so moving to Chicago is definitely a culture shock. I mean, definitely a culture shock for sure. Um, and then just knowing, like, you know, getting to know different people and just sort of how they kind of live and best time of my life. But my roommates at the time, her boyfriend lived there already. And she was like, hey, I'm planning a trip. Do you want to come? And I was like, hell yeah, I want to come. And so we went and I fell in love with it. And I was like, I'm going to just schedule like a tour. And I did. And I remember after the tour, we went back to the admissions office. And the guy's like, I mean, if you want to start in October, because this was probably in February that we went, he's like, um, I just need to check for like 150 bucks and I can enroll you. And I just remember looking at my roommate and I gave him the check and then I came back and I, I remember telling my family about it, what I was doing. Yeah. And my brother was getting married that year. So my mom was really focused on the wedding. And so then, I mean, I was bouncing, I mean, I was dipping in August. So as the months, I mean, as August was approaching, you know my mom would come and she's like where are your curtains my mom sold them because <laughs> i was selling everything that i had yeah yeah You're about so, to be out. yeah and so that's when everybody was like what are you doing da, 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 da. and i just i remember selling everything that i had including my car um my intention wasn't that i was coming back and i moved to chicago with two luggages i remember that was the scariest thing i remember uh, the flight like where you know the plane takes off and i was like oh shit this is a one-way ticket like i'm not coming back and then landing in midway and just like home sweet home like yeah this is this is where i'm at yeah and so how long was school actually in chicago so i was there for i think close to four years yeah yeah Uh and I, w- I went to go see you and visit you there. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that I remember you being, even though how much of a struggle it was, I remember seeing just how happy and kind of full of life you were. Like just being in that city. And I remember like, because I, I had never left San Antonio at that point. And, and I was, I don't know, 22 at the time. And going into your apartment, which was not far from downtown and being like, do you have cable? And you were like, we don't need cable here. And I'm like, I couldn't fathom in my head what that meant. I was like, what do you, what, what do you mean? Like, I need to watch TV. Like you're like, there's so much in the city. We're just here living. And I'm I'm like, uh, and our friend was there with us. And I was (laughs) like, uh, Ramito lost his damn mind. (laughs) He don't have no damn cable. What are we going to do when we're here? And then it ended up being one of my favorite trips that I still talk about yeah. to this life. I mean, we walked everywhere. We did. I mean, everywhere. Yeah. And then do you remember when we visited a, a certain area of Chicago? Mm, what area? 
a little place called I think I think it's called Boys Town. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, Halstead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the one thing you told us we had to we had yeah. to do right. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you remember that experience? Because in my mind, I remember it super clear, but I it's probably I, a different experience than you. Yeah, I might have been a little faded for it, but no, not really, actually. <laughs> yeah? yeah? Yeah. So I, I remember, so for those who don't know, it's called Boys Town, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Boys Town is the, the gay area of Chicago, and I was there also with my friend Mike, who's straight, and... um. I don't remember the name of the first club, but we went to this first club and it was a legit club. Like, don't, 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 you know, like that kind of place. And, um, and as soon as like I walked in, like within, I would say a minute, some guy, some guy had grabbed my butt (laughs) and I remember I grabbed Mike's hand and I said, tonight you're my man. (laughs) And he said, I'm with it because this is a little much. And then we went we went through that night and then like they had a second floor that had like a balcony and it was a little it was a little more chill there but it was still a lot. And then I remember like you kind of noticed we were a little on edge. And you were like, "But okay, so let's go to another place in Boys Town that's pretty chill. They have a pool table, they have a dart board or whatever. It's like a really mellow place." And I don't remember the name of it either cuz obviously this is yeah. what 14 years ago. So then we went there and you were in fact right. It was very chill and it was like a really quiet bar. It kind of looked like Cheers and they did have a dartboard and they had a pool table and me and Mike were ordering a drink and then all of a sudden we look around and you were gone. And we were like, where's Ramito? <laughs> so we kind of move around and we were like looking around and then all of a sudden we see this curtain and then we didn't realize that this place had multiple <laughs> rooms and so we were still looking for you, and then we w- we walked into this next room, um, which wasn't so chill for a regular straight man. And um, all of a sudden, I saw a waiter in straight up spandex, and he was like a, had a vest on, like a full on vest, some, like a leather vest, and then had like a, a leather like leotard on. And I was like, okay, this is a totally different room than the one we just came from. So me and Mike are like, okay, well, we still don't see Ramiro. And um, all of a sudden we see a crowd. We see this big crowd. And like we couldn't see anything past the crowd. We're like, what is everybody looking at? And then so we're like, okay, well, let's find out because we're sure maybe Ramiro's over there. And then we ended up going to the crowd and... And then we finally get close. We get finally get closer. Now I remember. And then there's this, the prettiest, <laughs> the prettiest, kind of like, short-haired blonde guy I'd ever seen. Like he had shorter shoulder-length blonde hair, and he was in his tidy whities, and they were spraying him down with a water hose, and. At that point, me and Mike and our uh, straightness said, this is a little much. I think we'll probably step out from here. And we still hadn't found Ramiro at that point. <laughs> and so we're, we we knew where we were staying. So we just headed our way back and went to a bar and then text Ram and said, hey, this was a little overwhelming. <laughs> so yeah. we're going to step out, but we'll be here if you're going to meet us. Do you remember that? Is that the way you so remember it? Now I remember it. So this bar is actually, it was right at the corner of Clark and I don't know if it's Halstead. I just remember it being actually off of Clark. And I remember because I remember um our other friend Chun was there. 
Yeah. He lived there. So I remember there was people also that we were meeting up with too. Yeah. And I think that's probably where I think your straightness was sort of like a snore. And so I was like, uh, yeah, I'm going to just let them do whatever. And then I was like, I'm going to have a good time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was cool. You met up with us afterwards and it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a big deal, but I mean, that was a, a really interesting experience because at that point I had only been to the, the San Antonio strip and what I've experienced in San Antonio was not that. Oh yeah. Um, but it was still an interesting experience. Nevertheless, yeah. my first experience at a gay bar in Chicago, actually it wasn't my first. So a friend, a friend of mine, uh, used to host these really like outlandish bougie ass parties at his apartment in Chicago, in Chicago. Uh-huh. And I mean, the guy made really good money, and his partner worked with my friend Chun. And so I remember going to their loft and like every room was a station. And I remember he had this chocolate themed uh, party. So like, I think his bedroom had nothing but like these like cordials and like bonbons and like anything truffle like that was like st- stations were set up in, in their bedroom. And then I think like in the other room, it was like, themed chocolate recipes and so i mean they were just like that and then at two he would end the party and everybody knew this and then he'd say i have cars waiting we're heading up to jack hammers so if jack hammers is still in chicago just fyi shout out jack hammers yeah we would go to jack hammers and when you roll up to jack hammers it's it looks like a regular bar so it, it sort of goes like long ways right there's like pool tables, you got the bar. But in the back corner, there's sort of like a, I guess a doorway, but it sort of leads to where what you see is like a staircase that leads downstairs. But there's a sign that says, you cannot go unless you take your shirt off. And so of course me, I was like, yeah, I kind of want to know what this is about. <laughs> <laughs> so it was me and my friend Chun and we took our shirts off and then we went downstairs and you can start hearing like the thumping music. And so for me, I remember uh, watching Queer as Folk and like watching the club scenes. That's exactly how it like played out. And so I get there and there's like dudes that are on these like pillars surrounding the bar and they're all like leathered out with like gay porn on like TVs. Um, And that's it. And I was like, what? And I remember we just did sort of like this rotation, but that was way too much for me. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go put my shirt back on. And so I went upstairs and like, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you about kind of growing up gay in San Antonio and what that was like. But kind of one last thing I'm going to talk about Chicago. I remember being there. Obviously, you had you were there a longer experience than me. But I remember being there in your little apartment. What was it like? Five hundred square feet. It was yeah. it was pretty tiny. It was tiny. But it was it was nice. But it was a nice layout. It though. was a nice layout, and we were like a block and a half from. Was it Lakeshore? Was that what it was called? It was not even a block. It was literally like you'd come out of the yeah. courtyard fence and boom, you were right there. At like yeah. Drive. And I remember um, one morning me and Mike woke up and we were like, we're going to go for a run. And, and we ran along Lakeshore. And I was like thinking, and I was like, oh my God, this is so inspiring. Like the city's so beautiful. You c- you can understand how people are so inspired to like live here. And I was like, it made sense to me how like, five days before I had just been like, what do you mean you don't have cable? And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my God, this makes so much sense. Like you don't, you don't need this in the city. 
But to circle back, right? So um, growing up gay in San Antonio. Actually, if I can say one thing about that. So when you came to visit, that's when I realized how hardcore of a Taylor Swift fan you were. Hell yeah. Because you were the alarm clock with... Marry Me Julia? Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, she went hard. I don't like how much she hates on men these days, so I've fallen off, but... Yeah, 22, I was vibing Taylor Swift, and she meant a lot to me, but whatever. That was priceless for me. Like, yeah. Yeah. Now at 34, I feel she's a little drama, but I feel like she might be a toxic guy, but that's just me, you know? I grew up. So just FYI, when you call, that's your ringtone. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that part exactly. Well, <laughs> good. So... Can we can we yes, go, can we go back? Yes. So we so go growing, back to growing up gay in San Antonio. Yeah. So what age did you come out? I came out to my parents, I think, right after high school. So I I must have been eighteen, nineteen. Oh wow, I didn't realize you were that young. Yeah. But even then though, I feel like that was kind of old for me. I mean, I think you I mean if you knew me But around around what year was that? Because you're you're a little older than me. So ninety four. So it was like obviously now being gay is, is a lot more accepted but what was it like back in 94 like was that like even more terrifying i never really had a lot of opposition and even growing up where i did grow up but coming out to my mom i remember it was watching um an episode of i think it was er er right that's the one with uh george clooney yeah yeah, yeah. and then just really kind of like breaking down on her and she was like oh no like you know, don't, you're my son. I love you, you know, this and that, whatever. And then the next day is when I came out to my dad. And I remember we were driving down 410. And I remember this like vividly. And I was driving, he was the passenger. And I was coming down crossroads and going under I 10. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Dad, I have something to tell you. And my dad's like, What is it? And I said, Well, I'm gay. And the, or I don't know how it went. I don't know if it went like that because I remember my dad telling me, no, I don't want none of that in between shit. You either you are or you're not. And I told, and then I, oh, cause I, I, I think I told him, I was like, I don't know for sure. And then that's when he said, I don't know about this, like in between blah, blah, blah. But yeah. I did know he said, uh, do you have a boyfriend? And I said, no. And he's all good. He's like, cause when I meet him, I'm going to have to show him my shotgun. <laughs> And that really, that meant the world to me because my dad's like this hardcore, like machismo. Yeah. You see my dad and like, he's like really Godfather-like. Like, I mean, I honestly feel he's tied into the cartel possibly. I don't know. Where do you, where do you think, I mean, we're talking about late nineties, early two thousand. Where, I don't think it was fully accepted back then. Where where do you think he got the insight to be like? Oh, because my uncle's gay. Oh, okay. He's really, my dad. And my uncle Rudy are really, really his brother. Yeah. Oh, so okay. Uh, my uncle Rudy's like the baby of the family, so he has a really good relationship with him. Got it. Yeah. Okay, so that that kind of helped. So that makes sense where his kind of understanding because I'm thinking of this like super machismo guy, yeah. and then he's like, "Hey, I, I don't want this back and forth right. BS. Like, either yeah. you are or you're not." So okay, that that makes yeah. sense where it was. But I will say though, for my other cousins that have come out who are gay. I'm the only one that differs a little bit because I think for my parents at least, and I think even including my brother, I think they thought that I was just going to be this like out crazy, like super duper gay 
and I'm not like I'm just yeah. I think I'm more like feminine and I like I mean there's certain things I think it may a lot of it has to do with the way my grandmother raised me where I will kind of hold traditions of what that like wife should be holding so that's kind of what I fall into but when you put me into my other cousins like I'm just I'm really really different so what what are you thinking I don't know if you have any opinion on this because I don't have a strong a strong opinion or I may, be, I may be just ignorant to it. What do you think about this movement for the Latinx stuff? For the what? For like the Latinx or Latinx, like the generation where it's kind of, right? It's my understanding, right? They're trying to make it, um, I guess, a Hispanic culture, not male or female, right? Mm-hmm. I was just curious if you had any kind of insight or opinion on that. No, not really. I mean, I... I feel that there's this opposition for it because it stems away from tradition or like conventionality. And I think where our current culture has us becoming so empowered with just who we are as an individual before we even, you know, commit ourselves to anything. I think it's that empowerment where it gets misunderstood. And then you have you know, language that will kind of play in or like rhetoric that will play into what it's supposed to be like just to kind of identify, you know, what is this and what's happening? I think that's where it just sort of kind of gets um, misunderstood because I honestly, I don't, I don't really look at it that way. I feel like however it is that you sort of construct that way of life for yourself. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. And if it so happens to like follow a certain philosophy or a particular perspective, so be it. Um, yeah. Just as long as you're just happy doing what you're doing. Yeah. Just kind of like let people live their life yeah. or who they want to be. And if that too makes them happy, just roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of agree with that. So stepping away from that. So you go to Chicago and you come back from culinary school and then now you have a new lease on life, right? That's a total different career move from public relations. And oh, yeah. so now you're, back in San Antonio, what, four years later. So now what are you thinking you're wanting to do back in San Antonio? So what brought me back to San Antonio was, I remember coming to visit, um, it was the Christmas before I came back and my parents were talking to me and they, they, I fell in love with baking when I was in culinary school. And I, when I was in Chicago, I worked at a place called Fox and O'Bell and my um, executive baker was Pamela, Anyway, she was fire. She was really, she was bomb. She, everything that my ethic for just approaching pastries and just sort of like my approach to pastries came from her. And I just remember just falling in love with pastries. Like I I love pastry arts. And my parents said, well, if you come back to San Antonio, uh, we can look into maybe looking at like a space and then, you know, you can have, you know, if you want to open up your own bake shop. And I was like, hell yeah. And so I remember calling my best friend and her and my other best friend came to pick me up. We came, you know, came back to San Antonio and it was probably the hardest transition that I've ever had. And it was weird because I was born and raised here. My friends were here. My family's here. But the vibe was just so different. Yeah. So like connecting to people for what it is that I developed a passion for and like this huge, huge interest where I was living it every single day. It just wasn't there anymore. Oh yeah. That makes sense. And so then I, I, I remember 
the gracious table being born in Chicago, but it really didn't kind of come full circle until here in San Antonio. So like you, you mentioned when you came back, it was all about pastries and, and I've had, I've been lucky enough to have your cooking before, not just pastries. Mm-hmm. Um, but has that kind of been, obviously I know everybody that goes to culinary school kind of has their own venue of what they're looking for. Yeah. Has that always been kind of yours? Like that you've always thought like pastry is your, oh, no, is no, your no. thing? No, no, no. So it was my baking quarter, uh, at culinary school where, I really fell in love with it. And I actually, at the time when I, when I was doing the quarter, I, I guess I didn't know my skill set for it until I had my instructors telling me, mm-hmm. and they were even telling me, you should probably consider changing your degree. But I was going up there like, no, I'm doing savory. Like I just yeah. want to do like a traditional culinary school. And, uh, and I did, I stayed with it. But again, working at where I was working and who I was working for, because also where I was working at, we were the site for Martha Stewart's Living Magazine. Oh. So for those of you who pick up a Martha Stewart Living Magazine and you see those perforated like recipe cards, that was me. Like if there was the sweets, yeah, I was basically given a recipe. I had to approach it with like a five quart mixer. I had to log just my steps and everything that kind of came into play with it. And then they would come in the next morning and they would pick it up and then with my notes and all that. And so I never got to see anything that I did, but I know that it had to have been somewhere along the, along the way. Yeah. So it sounds like you really found your passion for food. And so like moving to present day, um, what is it you're, you're trying to do now with this, this blog? Cause I know you're trying to get into kind of like the whole experience, right? Not just food. You're trying to get into the wellness being mental health experience. So where was it along the way that took you not only from the health or the nutrition or food aspect to like the whole, the whole body kind of experience? Well, we'll need, we'll need to go back to, uh, six years ago and it's where I first started working for HEB Mm -hmm. and I remember seeing, um, a posting for, it was called a foodie. And when I was reading the job description, I was like, bro, that's me. Like that's I'm a foodie. Yeah, I'm a foodie. <laughs> and so my main focus was to make produce the center of the plate. And so to really encourage, I guess, customers to just get more produce onto your plate. And it was a lot of fun. And shortly after I started that position and being in my kitchen, I was approached by the dietitians of the company and they said, Hey, we're going to be looking into your kitchen. We're going to change its format and it's going to become wellness by HEB. And I was like, Oh, cool. And it was then that this passion for just wellness really woke me. And so becoming familiar with a lot of, um, you know, vendors, particularly like local. So like in Texas, uh, and then for me as a chef to be challenged with just flavor profiling and seasonality for making healthier dishes, that was actually really awesome. So I really, really liked that. I was big on texture, so I had a lot of fun just kind of creating recipes um, along with like flavor profiling, health aspects of like a particular product. That's when I realized that my interest and my passion was definitely moving beyond the plate. Mm-hmm. And so it was just looking at how are we living our best lives? 
what type of what dialogue do we have with ourselves and so it just started kind of slowly started to just um, evolve into what it's kind of become for me today and so I do have my wellness blog and my website which I do tie in um, the gracious table into and I'm excited for it I just I really want to particularly with this it's really more of getting men to engage in conversations about men's health. Cause yeah. I, I really feel like men don't really do that. I think they wait to the last minute. Yeah. So like we've talked privately about our own kind of like uh, body morphia like issues. So is it like your, your blog that you're doing or are you wanting it to be more informational or are you wanting it to be more kind of feedback from each other like, are, are you wanting people to know, like, hey, you're not the only one to experience this? Or is it like, here's your recipes or here's your guide for meditation? Like, uh, what kind of, like, sector are you trying to go with it? I mean, a little bit of everything. Yeah. I For me, though, it's more about connection. I've been doing, like, intentional living for, like, the past two years. And so connection was one of those uh, words this year that I wanted to do. And so I really sort of strive for connection. And so one of the pillars for the website or just the blog is just that I want to be transparent as possible because I feel with transparency, you connect more for sure because you know, you're also kind of vulnerable. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I want to do. So, you know, for me, my wellness journey started back in June You know, I weighed in at 273 and right now I'm like juggling between 230, 233 and it's been like, six months now five months yeah but there's been a lot that's kind of taking play in those months um uh, where i am going i've written a couple of blog pieces that i have yet to publish but it's i'm going to talk about things that you know i've been through and then things that people I, I just want them to be kind of aware about so should they come to the blog and they're like reading you know that i also will have sort of resources that they can kind of go to for you know, any added support that they might need. I mean, I'm excited about it because it's really just sort of like all encompassing wellness. Yeah. And I, I, I live it like every single day and I really try to kind of in, encourage people to live like their best lives. It's definitely like one of those journeys where you really need to know what you kind of want and be ready to, for what can happen because if you're not, it'll tear you down. Like it'll break yeah. you down. So I, I want to ask you something because um, we haven't talked about this privately, but I'm, I'm curious about it. So I work for a local nonprofit and I never stopped working in person during the entire pandemic. And I know the work you do, you haven't either. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, or do you have any thoughts in particular about the kind of mental health aspect of the essential workers who never stopped working in person and right. And essentially putting their lives on risk, right. Being there wearing their masks and for the better good. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, not necessarily other than, I mean, really being kind to your grocery people. I yeah. mean, cause it's one thing to, you know, be a nurse or a doctor where that's just sort of like the related field for everything that we just, you know, kind of experience. But I think for the positions where it gets kind of taken for granted, I mean, we all need groceries, right? We all need yeah. to go and like shop, but these are the people who 
they don't necessarily have that same wage as maybe a nurse or a doctor would, but yeah. they need to be there because or, you or need accolade, your, right? Yeah, yeah, because you need your milk and you need your eggs. Yeah, and, and a lot of the times, you know, these families are also going through some hardships. You know, they're going through what they had to go through, you know, during this pandemic. And so, other than just having those kinds of thoughts, I mean, for me, I just remember looking at, you know, what type of support are we going to receive as these uh, essential, non-essential workers? Um, yeah. And so I, I really feel that, you know, my company did a really good job in terms of uh, providing resources for mental health yeah. um, because now it's definitely acknowledged and recognized more so than prior. 20 so years like ago. Yeah. 20 years ago, nobody was talking about mental yeah, health. No. Yeah, I, I, I really think that um essential workers we're we're not going to see the effects that working in person had on these people for probably another two years because you think most of the economy were either unfortunately unemployed or they they were able to work from home and so they were able to get that kind of mental break and physical break from covid yeah and i think the essential workers weren't able to get any break in that and so I, I think that's going to be something that we're going to be dealing with within the next couple of years. Not that it might be catastrophic, but I, I think that the um, media or people aren't paying enough t attention to the, to that, uh, like what those people who are there. So my nonprofit works for at-risk youth and those people working directly with the youth, not being able, right? They don't have an option. The youth live with us and they had no option they, they can't work from home you know they can't call in right like the youth need being cared for so I, I just have a really soft spot um spot in my heart for them and i i think that those people really need more support and they'll they'll kind of get it as as time comes hopefully well i think also too with that i think it's also sort of woken a lot of people's eyes for what it is that they sort of want to do and who they want to work for because yeah. I, I have seen a shift in in with employers of, okay, well, how am I showing up for my people? And that's the thing, too. I think um, you really need to th think about uh, leadership in, you know, organizational cultures and what it is that they're doing. You know, what value are they going to bring into these people? Because, I mean, these people are going are bringing values to them. So, I mean, I've, I've seen it with my current employer. So, yeah. I think H-E-B has done a pretty good job. COVID has really flipped a lot of things on its head for a lot of industries and a lot of people, right? And yeah. I, I think it's a really interesting time, for better or for worse. And as me, as, as, as someone who studied kind of human resources and organizational development, and it's interesting to see how the population's moving about getting jobs or not getting jobs and what they're looking for for jobs. Yeah. You know, they're looking for the freedom of... You know, my job isn't my life anymore, which wasn't the case for our parents. You know, that was their life. And so uh, we already were in the sect of kind of gig work before. Mm -hmm. And um, now it's even more on pressure. Right. So people are really about like I talk to people all the time and they're like, well, those hours don't work for me. So no, thank you. Yeah. pass you up you know yeah and so you see the the market and the population changing and the society as a whole changing for what they're looking for i find it really interesting and 
I work for a lot of older people who I, I think don't want to accept the fact that the generation's changing, right? Yeah. That they want to continue to think like, well, you know, this isn't an option. You're going to need to get a job someday. And I was like, well, are they? Or can they just keep on delivering Uber Eats till they find something that they want? And they're like, why can't we find people? And it was like, because you're not listening to the generation speaking. Yeah. So it's been really interesting <coughs> for me moving forward. But Ramiro, I really love you. And if people want to um, follow you moving forward, mm -hmm. um, where can they find your stuff? Uh, so I have Mi Cocinador on Instagram. And that's me, M-I underscore Cocinador, C-O-C-I-N-A-D-O-R. I do have my website, which is www.micosinodor.com. And if anybody has any questions about anything, I mean, they can just also email me, ramenlove75 at yahoo.com. And we're looking for that website to be fully live probably <clears> within <throat> the next... I mean, I think for me, I think one of the biggest things that's been hindering this website launch has just been the idea of perfectionism in my head. Yeah. And so, mental health. Yeah. So... Yeah. I'm trying to kind of overcome that um, where everyone's just like, just do it, just launch it, just launch it. You know, shout out to my cousins, Emerald and Corey, who've just been uh, truly amazing with just putting this all together and them really just sort of kind of seeing this come to life for me. She, I mean, she's the one that sort of has done everything from the aesthetics and all that stuff. And then, you know, just sort of working with other people to just sort of make this kind of come really full circle for me. But I'm going to sh probably shoot for January. I think January seems to see seem like the best month because usually everyone wants to like, oh, my New Year's resolution is to lose 50 pounds or yeah. my New Year's resolution is to like, you know, just start something new or s start something healthy. So most likely in January. <laughs> well, I love you for doing this and I thank hope you. this puts a little more pressure on you. And thank you. And we'll talk again soon. Yeah, definitely.